0: You're listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Dania Krakowska. She's the author of the nationally best-selling novels Notes on an Execution, and Girl in Snow. Her books have been reviewed favorably in outlets like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, and have been translated into over a dozen languages worldwide. Notes on an Execution recently won the Edgar Award for Best Novel and is currently in development as a feature film. Daniel Works is a literary agent with Trellis Literary Management. On the show, we talked about using a time lock, keeping a process journal, point of view, how being an agent affects your own writing, genres and categories, and much more. But before we bring her on, I need to plug Patreon. If you've been listening to Writers on Writing and have found the show useful to your writing process, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing and becoming a supporter. There are perks for supporters and any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we've been doing for more than 20 years. Also, if you can find a few minutes, please leave a show review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help new listeners find the show. And now for my talk with Dania Kukovka, author of Notes on an Execution. So much to talk with you about. I First of all, let me say congratulations for the Edgar.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm still a little bit in shock about that. I it's bet. very exciting. Um, You can see him right here behind my desk, little <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe watching over me.
0: <laughs> Such a great award for this book. What what especially made me happy about you winning this award is because it's a crime novel, but it, the writing is so kind of poetic and lyrical and, and um, I don't know. Does, it's uh, it's more than the plot. It's more than the characters. It's also I mean there's so many layers to it. Um, I wonder if you would we could begin with you talking about the book and how it came about.
1: Yeah, so I like to say um, this is a novel about a serial killer that actually isn't about him at all. Um, it's about the women in his life who are affected and uh, by his violence and survive his violence. So it's not about the killer. It is a bit about the victims, but it's mostly about the long tentacles of violence and how they affect real living people. Um, so the book came about by my own fascination with true crime, um, with by my fascination with mysteries and thrillers, which I've always loved to read. And um basically by seeing the same narrative over and over and over again over the years. You know, even since I was a teenager, I loved to watch crime TV, um, like network crime TV. I loved Law and Order and CSI Miami and Criminal Minds and those kinds of shows. And I found that the story was sort of the same over and over and over again, right? You open on a dead body, usually a pretty young dead white girl, and you follow the cops till they find the killer and then justice is served and that's it, right? And I found even at that age, when I was watching those shows, I would wonder things like, well, what about the serial killer's mother, right? What Mm -hmm. about, um, the victim's family? You know, we don't really see, we don't really touch the meat of the story. It's just the same narrative served on a platter to over, over and over again. Um, and it's been that way for many years. And actually my first book Follows that same girl in snow. Follows that same pattern. So who done it, right? You open on the dead person, and by the end you find out who did it. And I knew I wanted to do something really different with this. And I was intrigued by sort of the legacy of the American serial killer as it has expanded and changed over the decades. And I knew I wanted to really dive into that.
0: Mm. So um, there are it's multiple point of view. So we have Ansel Packer, who is the serial killer. We we start with his his point of view. Um, But then there's Lavender, his mom. There's Safi, who he meets in foster care, who later is after him. And then um, Hazel, who is Ansel's spouse's sister, right?
1: Correct. I think that's it.
0: I -hmm. think that's it. How did you decide on, on them?
1: Oh, it's actually a really long story. I wrote an early draft of this book that was told from half from Ansel's perspective, from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, only the last chapter was set in prison. And the other half was told from a character named Blue, who's not really in the story anymore. Um, And my agent read it, and she was not particularly interested in Blue, or in, in the structure of Ansel's story, which glorified him in some ways and the only part she was really interested in was the um criminal justice aspect of it the prison system aspect of it and so that is how the countdown came into play but the women came into play sort of after that as she said to me upon reading this first draft which by the way I completely threw out um I there's only a single line from that draft that made it into the book and I can tell you which one it is um mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But I, I really thought she said to me, well, what about the women? What about the women? And I kept thinking about that question. What about the women? What about them? And I had actually written a, a chapter of Ansel's early childhood from his perspective. And I thought, well, what if I tried it from his mother's perspective instead? And that just clicked immediately. And I knew I needed more. And I had actually written all of these women before from Ansel's perspective, along with many others. So I Hosted a series of auditions for them, if you will. <laughs> I wrote maybe twelve or thirteen different women, just trying them out. I wrote a chapter from Jenny herself, his his ex wife. I wrote a chapter from Shauna, prison guard, who um, is talking to him about helping him escape from the prison. I wrote a chapter from Olympia, who works with him at the Dairy Queen when he's a teenager. So I really tried so many characters and it was very clear to me which ones made the most sense for the story and which ones had a voice from the beginning so Lavender was always a part of it and Safi when Safi was originated she was just a girl from his foster care mm-hmm. and I had an early reader say well she's really interesting why doesn't she come back and then I had just this like light bulb ding 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 moment when I realized oh she's she becomes a detective that makes so much sense and the story really became ro- began rolling from there
0: Mm -hmm. So what did you do with, well, obviously what you did with your agent's feedback is you revised, but what was your initial feeling? Do you remember going? Oh,
1: total "Mm -hmm." devastation. Yeah, (laughs) I was so upset. I have this memory of um, walking home. I used to work in the afternoons at the University of Washington Library it's this beautiful old library kind of looks like something out of Harry Potter um, and I used to I used to go there in the afternoons to write because I was tired of my house and I was you have to walk From that library to my old apartment over this beautiful bridge. And I live in Seattle where it's always raining, and I have this memory of just sitting there struggling, 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 not sure what to do. My agent has just told me it's all not working, and just walking over the bridge in the rain, just crying like this is never gonna work. And I had left my publishing job, I'd left New York, and this was really like what I was devoted to throwing myself into, and it was not working. And that was just a really important moment. Where I really had to look at myself and say, "Well, so what if this book never publishes? If you can't figure it out, what source is going to happen? You have to write it anyway, don't you?" And I was, I sort of looked at myself and said, "Yeah, you got to write it anyway." And that was kind of a a freeing moment in its own way.
0: But you had a first novel, yeah. So it's not like you (laughs) never did it before.
1: Exactly. Well, I had a first novel, and actually, I I wrote three novels before my first novel was published. Um, I, granted, I was in high school and college. So it doesn't really count. I don't know. But I did, I knew I could get to the end of a story. And that wasn't the problem with this one. I got to the end of this one. It just wasn't good. And then I did, really didn't know what to do.
0: So then what?
1: So then I yes yeah, so then I started <laughs> over. And it was really a process of sitting there and just thinking and feeling and, and intuiting my way through. And that was incredibly painful. I hope to never have to do it again, quite like that. Uh, I think I had put a lot of hope into the first iteration of it being the thing it was supposed to be and realizing that it wasn't was fairly devastating and also humbling. And I was able to, when I had that cleansing moment, just sort of let go of the idea of it having to work and then really starting to listen to it.
0: So are you an outliner?
1: no I wish uh, I'm so jealous of outliners I try I you know I outlined the book I'm working on now I outlined I wrote it and then I wrote it and then I looked at it and was like this is not interesting um this is not the story I want to tell and and it didn't work and I've, st- I've started over again and it turns out this is just my process and I've I've come to embrace it a lot more than I did for notes on an execution
0: well that's hard for a lot of writers right yes I mean- Writers feel like I wrote it. I should Mm -hmm. be doing something with it,
1: right? Like,
0: why would I do something else? I have to make this work.
1: Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it's about writing it and then letting it grow into what it needs to become. Writing it is not the, well, it is very hard, but that's not the hard part. I think listening to the story and letting it become something bigger than itself is the hard part and sitting with it over years and years and hours and hours of time and really pushing it I think is, is a hard part for me.
0: Hmm. So I wonder if, I mean, because you're an agent as well. So mm-hmm. you're on both sides of mm-hmm. that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, being an agent must make you more empathetic to what writers go through. And likewise, you probably picked up, I don't know, tips from writers and helping mm-hmm. them going, well, then
1: I should do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely goes both ways. And I do know a lot of the feelings that my clients have had. I know them firsthand. And I can be like, well, when I was going through this, it felt like this. And I think that's helpful in its own way. Mm
0: -hmm. And then,
1: yes, it's definitely true that I learned about revision from my clients. One of my clients just submitted an outline to me in the form of an Excel spreadsheet, which I had never once in my life considered. Granted, I had a lot of trouble. That's not how my brain works. So I was like, you got to turn this into a word document. <laughs> <laughs> I did not understand it. But it was one of those things where I was like, wow, people do things so differently. And I maybe, you know, maybe it would benefit me to change my ways in whatever form. But you're
0: really organized, aren't you? I mean, because I, yeah. heard, I heard a podcast with you where you're talking about you have a process journal, Mm -hmm. and you know like a certain number of hours you log your hours I mean Mm -hmm. talk about that talk about about doing that and why that's useful to you
1: yes so I keep a really intensive process journal which I love to just scream about on every interview I do because I think it's helpful for every writer no matter whether it looks like mine or it looks like your own version or whatever you want it to be um a small side note is: I actually saw this outlined really beautifully as well in a book by Matt Bell called "Refuse to Be Done." It's a craft mm-hmm. book, um, and he advises a similar process. And I'd never seen anybody else talk about it that way before. So, if you're interested in process journals, I definitely recommend "Refuse to Be Done." Um, all that said, I do keep a very intense process journal. I have kept it since the beginning of writing notes on an execution. Every day when I sit down, I will log the number of hours that I work um just, just just to sort of give myself credit right you sat down you did it doesn't really matter how much you got done you still did your hour or your 2 hours or whatever you had to do i log what i did that day uh so i'll say you know i wrote this one scene of this one character i will log what's working and what's not working and then i will log what comes up next so when i sit down i can look back At the previous day, and say, Oh, you just need to write these two scenes next. And you already did that work for yourself of thinking, What do you have to do today? Right. And having that, it's almost like leaving a paper trail for yourself, or, you know, they say, What's the, what's the, what's that um saying about driving with the headlights off? All right. You reach your, right? See so far. You can see, you can only see so far, but eventually if you keep driving, you'll reach your destination, right? Yeah. Well, this is like having headlights behind you too, right? <laughs> I feel like it's, you can look back and you can see exactly where you've been at any moment in time. And it's been really particularly interesting in the expression of what's working and what's not working being able to go back and see oh this one idea has been not working for six months we got to change it right and that has been really helpful too to see the through lines of for example there was a character blue in notes on an execution who had a chapter at one point that for I think two years I was writing blues that one blue chapter is still not working that one blue chapter is still not working mm-hmm. and finally I looked at all my journals was like, why am I still writing it? I got to change that. And now it is a Safi chapter. It's the same plot. It's just from Safi instead. <laughs> um, and that kind of thing, you know, it really gives you a map to your own mind in in a certain way.
0: Mm-hmm. You also knit, which I just yes. interesting because I knit, but I never keep it in my office and I should.
1: So that, is that what you're working on? This is what I'm working on is I'm holding it up right now. It is a, it's gonna be a, a poncho, like a colorwork poncho for the for the fall. Looking forward to wearing it eventually. Um, but this is a more complicated project. Usually, when I'm knitting on meetings or on um, while I'm writing, I'm constantly just going. And for that, I have one pattern that I like to knit just over and over again. It's this large blanket shawl right here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Half and Half Triangles Wrap by Pearl Soho, and it's just the same stitch. Over and over and over again for like six to eight months. Usually it takes me about that long (laughs) to make it. Uh, And I've written, I've made it this entire thing while I've been working on my third book. And so it's kind of cool to have it sitting at my desk and I wear it and I wear it kind of like a little blanket. Um, And for me, it's so helpful to have something else to attach my mind to when I'm thinking about picking up my phone and scrolling Instagram or when I'm just staring and like feeling kind of itchy because the words aren't coming out, it is nice to just be like, I'm gonna knit a row. And then by the time I'm done with the row, I almost always know what I wanna, what I wanna type next. Um, and sometimes it'll be three stitches and then I'm typing, but I haven't even noticed that I'm doing that, right? <laughs> So what are you
0: thinking when you, like, are you thinking when you start knitting or are you just trying to let it all blank out so that you're not like forcing yourself to think about any particular thing about the book? A little
1: bit of both, I think. So usually when I'm doing that, I'll have my, I'll have, I'll be working on a scene, right? I'll have my document open in front of me. I'll have my music playing that. And I always listen to playlists that I create for my books specifically that Put me in the minds of the characters in terms of mood, and I have my music playing. I have my document, I have my process journal open, and I just say to myself, "You just have to sit there and knit." And almost always, I end up writing. It's <laughs> a
0: great idea. I'm going to bring my knitting into the office. Oh, I
1: really. I recommend, a, so you need the most mindless pattern in the world, because yeah. you actually have to think about the knitting, that it defeats the purpose, because you're not thinking about the writing. <laughs>
0: I agree. Yeah. Even Collins, I, I remember he talked about, he sketches. Mm-hmm. It's like, just to put the, the brain somewhere else.
1: Yeah, you know, before I discovered knitting, I actually...
0: Somehow I can't hear you. What oh, happened? sorry, my phone was ringing. Okay. Um... You said bit before knitting. Um,
1: before I started knitting, I had a yo-yo at my desk and I was just kind of like playing with it like that, right? Like yo-yoing back and forth. And that was not particularly satisfying. Yo-yoing turns out it's not my thing. Knitting <laughs> totally is. But it was the same idea um, of like, you're just doing something with your hands. You're doing something repetitive with your body that allows your mind to unstick itself a little bit. So before I started knitting, I kept a yo-yo on my desk. Um, I think it was like an early version of what my hands needed from knitting, um, and just, I think just a repetitive motion for the body can really help un- unstick the mind. I'm not no, yo-yoing turned out to be not like my. <laughs> Life's hobby, but but it was helpful for a short period of time.
0: and and the thing about your hobby is that you have something at the end, right? With the
1: amazing, yes, (laughs) exactly. At the end, I have a little blanket for my desk, so actually, it's like it's so great, and I can look at the blanket and know that I wrote my book while I was making a blanket. It's kind of cool. I'm gonna have to look at that that pattern. Oh, I love.
0: I really recommend it. Yeah, especially when you don't have to think and you don't even have to look. Right. Exactly. So I wanted to talk about the time lock. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned it earlier, but but you know, the book really takes place over 12 hours. I mean, it doesn't because we go all these other places, right. but you know, it starts and then it's over. Talk about that. And at what point did that come into play?
1: Yeah, I love having some sense of scaffolding. Um, I think it's really important for the structure of a book. For the reader to understand at the beginning that you are going somewhere definite and i think a time walk is a really useful vehicle for that it can be sometimes it can be a little too obvious but i don't ever really mind that actually i think it's okay i like as a reader to feel that sense of urgency and tension, and i think that's what it brought for me it wasn't always there like i said so um in the first draft of the book there was only one chapter that took place in the prison. And when I started really thinking about why I would set it in the prison and I started researching capital punishment in the prison system and um, what executions really look like, I got very very interested in the sort of injustices of the prison system. And that was a helpful way to structure the book and also say something on top of that. Um, so I, I decided on that pretty well into the process actually. I really like it, as you said. You know, there's the tension of what's
0: going to happen, right?
1: I mean, Mm -hmm. he has this much time. What's going to happen, right? And you know, from the countdown, like you're going to end up at zero eventually. What's that going to look like, right? Right.
0: So you mentioned research um, into the prison system. Like, what did you do? What did you? Oh,
1: yeah, Um, that was really interesting. I really wanted to get this prison as accurate as I could. So the Huntsville prison is a real place. It's where a third of the country's executions take place. And I knew I was not going to be able to get inside. Um, It would just take way too much for And, you know, I didn't want to entangle myself with actual prisoners because that comes with a lot of baggage. So I ended up reading a lot of prison blogs from people who were imprisoned there um, and people who were on death row there. But what was really helpful, I, I realized I needed a local assistant, someone to actually go around the community, not necessarily into the prison, but around the community to learn about it. So on the advice of a friend who writes historical fiction and hires research assistants for it, I, um, Emailed department chairs at graduate programs and asked if they had any students who would be willing to help with some research. And I found a PhD student who lived in Houston, very close to the prison, and he was able to find ex-correctional officers, lawyers, and judges who'd spent time in there, um, as well as sort of scouring all of the blogs I was reading to find things like the layout of the prison, what time they get their showers, what time they get their breakfast, what the actual execution chamber looks like. Mm-hmm. And he was able to find you know some photos, a really, really detailed write-up. So all that to say I hired out, but I by the time I got to that point and by the time I do my research, I usually am pretty far along in the writing process. I don't like to do a ton of research beforehand just because so many things change.
0: Hmm. So Jenny is a really interesting character. She's, you know, it's like you introduce her at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but we don't know who
1: she is for a long time. Talk about Jenny. I loved writing Jenny because we see her through Hazel, who's her twin sister. Mm -hmm. Hazel's perspective is one of having been with Jenny for her entire life. Um, You know, she watches her sister change and grow as she's trying to change and grow in similar and different ways. They're always sort of, you know, having that battle that all families have of power and success and ambition and whatever it is that I think is heightened for siblings and particularly heightened for twins. And I, I loved writing Jenny over a span of so many years and seeing how she changes over the years. Especially, you know, there are some scenes where Jenny and Hazel are teenagers together. Then there are some scenes where they're in their forties. And I won't give any spoilers here, so I won't say much more about about Jenny than that. Um, but I do think, you know, you you often wonder who could be with a person like that. And Jenny has a lot of um, issues that she's working through throughout the book that I don't think explain why she could do something like that, but explain why she's walking with her eyes closed in some ways. And I think Hazel can see that and the reader can see that too.
0: And Lavender, mom, mm.
1: talk about creating Lavender. I love lavender she lavender came out almost just fully formed she i i had been thinking on the character of the serial killer's mother for so many years and questioning it and empathizing with that position or that possibility or how someone becomes that person Mm -hmm. what they might do about it for so long that by the time i sat down to write her she felt just like a real person um and i felt I felt such sadness for lavender as I was writing her but also I wanted to give her her life back in some ways right I wanted her to exist aside from him which she's able to do throughout the book.
0: This would be a great time for you to read because I think you're going to read from. Mm-hmm. Lavender.
1: Disney. I am. Excuse me I'm going to sneeze first. <laughs> Excuse me, the uh pollen here in Seattle right now is no joke. It's like spring. Oh it's killing me. Um, all right. So the only thing you need to know about lavenders, this is her first, uh, her first chapter. It's set in 1973, and she is Ansel Packer's mother. <clears throat> if there was a before, it began with lavender. She was 17 years old. She knew what it meant to bring life into the world the gravity. She knew that love could swaddle you tight and also bruise. But until the time came, Lavender did not understand what it meant to walk away from a thing she'd grown from her own insides. Tell me a story, Lavender gasped between contractions. She was splayed out in the barn on a blanket propped against a stack of hay. Johnny crouched over her with a lantern, his breath curling white in the frigid late winter air. The baby, Lavender said, tell me about the baby. It was becoming increasingly clear that the baby might actually kill her. Every contraction proved how horribly unprepared they were, despite all Johnny's bravado and the passages he quoted from the medical textbooks his grandfather had left. Neither of them knew much about childbirth. The books hadn't mentioned this. The blood, apocalyptic, the pain, white hot and sweat soaked. He'll grow up to be president, Johnny said. He'll be a king. Lavender groaned. She could feel the baby's head tearing at her skin, a grapefruit half-exited. You don't know it's a boy, she panted. Besides, there's no such thing as kings anymore. She pushed until the walls of the barn went crimson. Her body felt full of glass shards, a jagged inner twisting. When the next contraction came, lavender sank into it, her throat breaking into a guttural scream. He'll be good, Johnny said. He'll be brave and smart and powerful. I can see his head laugh. You have to keep pushing. Blackout. Her whole self converged into one shattering wound. The shriek came then, a mewling cry. Johnny was covered in gore up to his elbows, and Lavender watched as he picked up the gardening shears he'd sterilized with alcohol, then used them to cut the umbilical cord. Seconds later, Lavender was holding it, her child. Slick with afterbirth, foamy around the head, the baby was a tangle of furious limbs. In the lantern's glow, his eyes were nearly black. He did not look like a baby, Lavender thought, little purple alien. Johnny slumped beside her in the hay, panting. Look, he rasped, look at what we made, my girl. The feeling hit Lavender just in time, a love so consuming it felt more like panic. The sensation was followed immediately by a nauseous, tidal guilt, because Lavender knew from the second she saw the baby that she did not want this kind of love. It was too much, too hungry, but it had been growing inside her all these months and now it had fingers, toes, it was gulping oxygen. Johnny wiped the baby down with a towel and positioned him firmly against Lavender's nipple. As she peered down at the scrunched and flaking bundle, Lavender was thankful for the dark of the barn, the sweaty damp of her face. Johnny hated when she cried. Lavender placed a palm on the ball of the baby's head, those initial traitorous thoughts already laced with regret. She drowned the feeling with assurances, murmured against the baby's slippery skin. I will love you like the ocean loves the sand. They named the baby Ansel after Johnny's grandfather.
0: Well, you know, that it was great to hear you read that. It makes you want to read the book again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've read it many times. I think I'm good, but.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, because there's so much that you don't, like when you read a book the first time, there's a mm-hmm. lot that you don't really notice until mm-hmm. you read the book and you go, oh, so as you're reading that, I was thinking, what great um, foreshadowing in that section! Little purple alien, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, and then there was something else. I something else I was thinking of is that um, most of what we find out, we find out directly. You don't do much backstory. No. Talk about yeah. that. I mean, it keeps you know. the, it keeps the story moving. And at the same time, we're getting all that we need to stay in the story and, and to keep reading.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, almost the whole book is backstory. So if, you're, if you look at the present tense, which is just those 12 hours counting down, right? And there's maybe 10 of those sections. I think maybe fewer than that, actually. And they are only a few pages each. The whole rest of the book, I think 90% of the book, is backstory, <laughs> so, he, but it's all in scene. So that's what makes scene. it not feel like backstory. I think it's all lived through the eyes of the reader. Right. That's yeah. so great. That's such a great study. For mm-hmm. Anyone
0: trying to do this, <laughs> like, read the book, because backstory really just loads you down and you go, well, I have to, you know, the readers have to know this but how to do that, right? It's like in scene. Keep it yeah,
1: in scene. I always recommend, I used to teach a little bit and to my clients as well, I always recommend put it in scene make it as physical as you possibly can, you know, um, smells, tastes, sounds, feelings, those kinds of things. Um, You know, they're so much more powerful than if you just say this happened and this happened and this happened long ago. You can say this happened and it smelled like this and it reminded him of the feeling of this, Right. right? And I think that can be so much more powerful than just saying it. And it gives the reader more to hold on to as well. Right.
0: And so what do you think of prologues? Had you considered a prologue at
1: all? (laughs) No, I never considered a prologue for this one. I always knew that it would start with the 12 hours and that it would continue on. So no, I never thought of one. I don't dislike them, though. Um, I don't ever have a problem with prologues. I have never written one, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I find that sometimes I'm skipping over them, even though. I mm-hmm. like them, but yeah. I, especially if they're in italics, maybe that's it. Oh, yeah, italics, I agree
1: with yeah. the italics prologue. I think putting a prologue in italics can be a way of saying like, this is not really important for writing. Right. Right. Now.
0: right. <laughs> yeah. And if it isn't, great. Put, put
1: <laughs> if <in laughs> right? it isn't, then take it out. <laughs> that's what I would say. <laughs>
0: um. So there was something I wrote down when you were reading. Oh, you know what? Here is what it is. So on the back of your book, it says, um, um, a gripping and atmospheric work of literary suspense, which indeed it is. But when writers are querying agents, literary suspense, is not really one of those categories. Anybody wants you to say you're doing right. So <laughs> there's all these other categories. So what, I mean, what do you think?
1: If I was querying this book now, I'd probably just put it in mystery thriller or literary fiction maybe. But when I'm talking about it to people, I call it crime fiction. I always say, you know, I met a new neighbor today and they said, what do you say? I write crime fiction. And that seems to embody it um, most clearly for me. Although if you have to put it in those agency categories, I probably would just go with mystery and thriller. And I do see many bookstores stock it as a mystery or thriller. I think those genre, uh, those genre labels can be really claustrophobic. But I think particularly for this book, my publisher did a really, really beautiful job with packaging and copy and the cover and the title and making sure that it was clear that this book was not a traditional mystery and thriller. Right. I think if, if people picked it up wanting that, they would be disappointed. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. And yet it won the Edgar. <laughs> and yet, yes. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, what's interesting is like, the Edgar is about crime writing, right? And I do think it's crime fiction. Right. And and thrillers are a subset of crime fiction, or that's how I look at it. Yeah,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. But the literary suspense, I mean, that's always what I'm attracted to, right? Mm-hmm. Me too. So- you know, I love that it was there and that it won the Edgar. (laughs) (laughs) Edgar. That's perfect. So who do you read for pleasure? Like, who do you read now? Oh goodness. Um, i well, back and read the
1: classics and. Oh no, I, I, I am embarrassingly uneducated on the classics, uh, to the point where I can't even really talk coherently about them for the most part. You know, I read the basics in high school and the basics for my English major in college. Um, but aside from that, I have never read a classic voluntarily. I'm really bad and embarrassing and uncultured, but I do love contemporary fiction and you know, I haven't been reading a ton of it on paper. What I've been doing lately is audio um, because I can just fit that into my life more easily. You know, I'm walking the dog or cleaning the house, or folding laundry or whatever it is. I'm able to gardening, you know, um, knitting for that matter. <laughs> um, I'm able to just put on, on an audio book. And right now I'm reading Demon Copperhead, the, Bar- the Barbara King solver book that just won the Pulitzer. And it's beautiful, as I knew it would be. There are a couple books that I start on audio. Um, for example, The Paper Palace uh, by Miranda. Oh, I'm going to forget her last name. Um, yeah. You know, uh, where is it? I have it right here. It's off The Tip of My Tongue. It's a Riverhead book. I loved it.
0: Miranda Kaliheller.
1: Um, I think that's right. I hope that's right. Anyway, I started that on audio. And I got, I listened to the first page and was like oh no this writing is so good I have to read it on paper and every now and then that happens to me um my favorite book recently that I can really say with strong conviction is my favorite book is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin which I'm sure you've heard of and talked about before oh yeah I was just blown away by that book by the power of it the structure the writing all of it was just incredible and I was so moved by it
0: so do you represent what you read? I mean, like what you, the books you're talking about now or do you represent, are you like any in any kind of niche? You know, I only do yeah. this or that or.
1: Yeah, I represent pretty much what I like to write and what I like to read. I represent some. I call it literary fiction with a mystery or thriller bend to it, um, literary fiction with a speculative bend to it, I really like, so, um, this book behind me, Walk the Vanished Earth by Erin Swan, has aliens in it, but it's actually a literary novel about a family over many generations, Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of, I like literary fiction wearing some kind of genre sunglasses, is what I say. That said, I do go a little weirder, um, so I, I like my weird little books, I've got one, um called The Invisible Hotel coming out next spring by an author named Yeji Weiham, she's a debut. And it's a sort of coming of age horror novel set in Korea in a small town where every family has a bathtub full of their ancestors' bones that they have to wash every day. Um, and it's this super kind of structurally experimental book. Her voice is so unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of thing, when a book really blows me away and what it's trying to do that's completely different from anything else I've ever read, genre almost doesn't matter uh, to me. Although I will say I'm, I almost always represent dark books. I'm never doing, I don't do rom-coms. Most of my books are incredibly dark, if you can imagine.
0: (laughs) Sounds good to me. Um, So anyway, I think we're getting to the end of our time. And I wonder if um, you have any tips or just advice for the writers listening, especially maybe the writers who are going through drafts of novels, Mm -hmm. maybe starting to approach agents. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of writers out there that are trying to figure it out. And
1: yeah, yeah, the difference in my mental state and my process between writing my second book and my third book has been fairly drastic in that I've realized one thing. And that is the kind of no matter what happens with your book, you should want to write it anyway. And that's the point of it. The point of it is writing it. The process is the point of it. You can get published, you can win awards, you can get big TV deals, whatever you want. There will always be something else you can get. And there will always be more success you... Other people have, and there will always be more rungs to the ladder that you can climb. The first one, finding an agent, then you have to find an editor. Then you have, you end up with the best of lists that you're on or you're not on, and there is always something more to want. But where you can find true peace, I think, and true joy is in the actual act of creating, and that's what I'm really trying to focus on these days. The process is the point of it all.
0: Hmm. But again, like it's, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because. You know, when you have an award-winning book, right and you've and before and you've had a first novel, then I think writers non unpublished writers might think, well, she should be relaxing, right
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I mean, not
0: worrying about worrying about this stuff,
1: yeah, and that's what I'm saying is there's never a point where you stop wanting right? Um, right there's never a point where you stop thinking, well, what's next for me right what what is the next step for me and Really for for my process, it was it was that moment I just talked about where my second book was not working, and I had that thought of if this is never published, if every publisher in the world hates it, and like you never write a- another book again, do you have to do this anyway for yourself? And the answer was absolutely yes, you have to for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that moment, and that that of course was before the Edgar Award and before all the excitement. <laughs> that moment really changed me, I think, in a lot of ways. In how I approached the page, which was for me, um, and for almost like an act of prayer or meditation or self-care, if you will. Um, It's a thing you do because you want to do it and because it brings you some sort of, not joy, I find it frustrating a lot, but satisfaction or, I don't know, fills your soul in some way.
0: Yeah. Well, so the Edgar, then what has that done? Right? (laughs) Um, mean mostly... like? I mean, it must make you a little more confident. Oh, than... yeah. I um...
1: mean, I was so excited. I, I really did not think I was going to win that to the point where, like, I told my husband he didn't have to come to the ceremony, and then I really... <laughs> he wasn't there and he wanted to come but he just started a new job so we were like ah no you're not gonna take time off two weeks into your new job you know um but like I really thought there was kind of no way that I would actually win that um and then when I did I think I'm definitely still processing it's only been about a month Mm -hmm. um and I'm definitely still processing sort of the company that it puts me in um it doesn't feel that part doesn't feel real yet although he keeps making fun of me I'll be like making a cup of tea and he'll be like ah Edgar award-winning tea and I'll be like come on man (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so that kind of thing is still is still funny and I you know my friends here in Seattle when they I haven't seen friends in a couple weeks we'll get drinks they'll be like to the Edgars and I'll be like "Yeah, yeah to the Edgars but that's kind of that's kind of it and you know it's it's exciting. And, and I really hope it bodes well for how people receive my next book, but you never know. Every book is so different and all I can do is put my head down and keep working. And that's all I have been doing. That's the only, there's no change in that sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, well, this has this been optioned? Is this going to become something on the screen?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. This is going to become a movie, a feature. Can you film. talk about it? I can't yet, um, so it has not been announced yet, so I can't talk about it publicly yet, but um, it will be yeah, a full-length feature film with major streamer, which is really exciting. That's so great.
0: That's so
1: great. I Can't yeah. wait. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for spending the time. It's been such a great pleasure to talk with you, and thank I love the book. Thank
1: you so much for having me. This was such a delight. I really, I'm so glad to be here, and thank you for a great conversation.
0: Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net my website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.